Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back for the second episode of Food People. It's nice to have you. For this episode, we wanted to take a step back and talk about why we gave the podcast this name anyway. I think a lot of you would agree that the word foodie, it just doesn't quite sit right. At Bon Appetit, we've never really used it to describe ourselves. We're not foodies, but we are food people. And I bet if you're here, you might describe yourself as a food person too. But what does that actually mean? And how did we get this way? I can go first. I've loved food for as long as I can remember. In elementary school, my best friend and I, we'd host this make-believe cooking show in my parents' kitchen and definitely almost burned it down at least once. But most of the other people in my family are more on the eat-to-live, not-live-to-eat side of things. My grandmother was a literal dietitian, if that tells you anything. So it took me kind of a long time to admit that I was a food person and to embrace that. And the truth is, working at Bon Appetit alongside so many talented and obsessed in the best way food people is really what helps me get there. You're going to hear from a lot of them on this podcast. So for this episode, we're sharing just a few of their voices and their stories about what makes them food people. The moment I realized I was a food person, I was in high school probably, and my sister and I made extremely buttery popcorn and a microwaved bowl of Velveeta and milk for dinner. We sat in front of the TV and I thought, I'm going to dip every popcorn kernel into this queso one by one. To my knowledge at the time, no one in the history of the planet had ever done this and might never do it again. This was genius. This was innovation. This was delicious. The taste of a little Debbie honey bun that I had stashed away from my three older siblings. My grandmother's special ziti sauce. It was a carrot-based pasta sauce that I have not seen anywhere else in the world and it was delicious. So a few years ago, my fiance and I went to Mexico City and came upon an ice cream place. And we were like, oh yeah, we're definitely getting an ice cream cone right now. We're definitely going to ruin our dinner. So we went in and I got a double scoop of their flavor of the day, which was mango sumac. It was like this perfect, fruity, lemony, subtly spicy. It was just like the most perfect ice cream I've ever had. When I'm having a hard time falling asleep, I just lie in bed and close my eyes and visualize myself making cheeseburger after cheeseburger, which brings me just immense peace and joy. And normally after the sixth or seventh burger, I'm, I'm out like a light. When I was a toddler, my aunt and mom decided to make kimchi. And so they let me participate. And we were in her kitchen. We were all doing the kimchi squat, which is when you squat while making kimchi. And we were surrounding this huge bowl filled with enormous heads of Napa cabbage. And my aunt started to show me how to grab the gochugaru sauce, which is the spicy seasoning for kimchi, and how to delicately pull apart each leaf and smear the sauce between each layer. And I tried it, and my aunt told me that I did a good job, and it made me feel really proud. That time I made a cake that called for 30 eggs, just because. Whenever I felt that it was unfair that I couldn't do something because I was a kid, my mom would tell me that when I grew up, I could drink milkshakes for breakfast. And guess what? 
I do. In describing a couple of coffees I was tasting, I once made the mistake of letting my wife overhear me say that one had angles as opposed to another having curves. And I pretty much knew then that I was a food person. I used to do this thing as a kid where when I was eating rice, I would stuff my mouth full of rice. I already had chubby cheeks and my cheeks would just balloon up to the point where I couldn't fit any more rice. And that would be the time that I decide to chew. It sounds quite absurd now, but I just think food tastes better when every inch of it is touching every inch of your taste buds. <laughs> Thank you to Alex Beggs, Chala Tyson Chitundu, Matt Sav, Kendra Vaculin, Emil Stanek, June Kim, Christina Che, Mackenzie Chung-Fagan, Chris Morocco, and Julie Shen for their stories. There are so many food moments, big and small, that make us into who we are. But as our first guest is here to explain, sometimes becoming a food person means leaving another part of yourself behind. I am so excited to introduce Rachel Gurjar. She's a new-ish member of the Bon Appetit editorial team in the test kitchen, and she has a particularly fascinating entry point into the world of food. Hey, Rachel, welcome to Food People. Hi, Amanda. So excited to be here. So we're going to get to your food person moment later. But first, tell us where you're from and what you were doing before you landed here at BA. I'm from India. And I studied in a couple of different cities before finding my way back to Mumbai. And after doing my master's in mass communication, I landed in PR and I took that job and I did PR for a few years and I realized that it is not for me. <laughs> I found that I wasn't really passionate about that. I actually didn't know what my passion was, you know, which led me to reevaluate my life in addition to kind of going through a midlife crisis. An early life crisis. You were 25? <laughs> yeah, early life crisis. <laughs> You know, I had a bad breakup and I was like, what am I doing? Like I was living with my parents in Mumbai and life was comfortable, but <laughs> but it also felt a little boring and empty, Yeah, which is why I made a list of things that I liked and I didn't like. And food just seemed like a recurring theme. I gravitated towards food when I was sad. I gravitated towards food when I was happy. A lot of like key special moments were around food. And that's when I was like, maybe I can do something with this. So I was like, okay, I guess I can go to culinary school. And, you know, as you can imagine, my parents were like, really, Rachel? <laughs> so did you really know or were you just telling your dad because you really needed to get out of the house and figure this out? How sure were you? I was, say I was 80% sure. That's pretty like, good. <laughs> Sometimes when there's something you love so much and you said it brought you so much joy and comfort, those things don't always translate to things we love to do for money. Were you worried that you would get into food as a career and lose this sort of love and joy that you had for it? Yes, I was. And that's the first thing my dad told me because my dad has worked in the hotel industry in India. So he said, Rachel, are you sure? Because 
you're not going to be able to spend time with family, forget about weekends, you know, forget holidays, and you're probably not going to make a lot of money. And I was like, I know. So with that said, you know, I packed my bags and moved to New York with no family. I had one friend. Wow. (laughs) And started culinary school. So before we talk about culinary school, let's just go back to what you said about food being associated with these special moments when you were growing up. What are some of the foods that hold that kind of significance for you? During summers, we went back a lot to Madhya Pradesh, where my extended family lived. And women sort of took on the role there, my aunts and stuff, to prepare a lot of the dishes. And one of the things I remember that were just such a staple, apart from mangoes, was it's called panika besan, which literally translates to water, chickpea flour, curry-ish style things. So the texture is almost like savory porridge, but it's made with chickpea flour, lots of spices, onions, like smashed up garlic and chilies. And you're supposed to put it directly on your plate. And then you kind of like scoop it up with your roti and then you have pickled onions on the side. And I love eating that. And whenever I go back to India a lot, my mom will be like, what do you want to eat? That's one of the first things I say I want to eat. And then the second item is also a super regional dish. It's called dal bati. Dal is, you know, yellow lentils. And it's served with bati, which is a form of a baked bread, but it was baked over charcoals. And it sort of looks like a a little bit bigger than a golf ball with a dent in the center. And you're supposed to crush that in your dal and eat it. And the bati is soaked in ghee. So it's so comforting and very much an essence of where I come from and my family. Yeah, it's so specific. And I love how many sort of textures and flavors you're describing, and it's so visceral. So, all right, you enroll in cooking school. How do you get from there to working at Bon Appetit? You know, in cooking school, I remember I was one of the first people who had a job (laughs) within the first three weeks of joining. And it was more out of necessity because I had no money in my bank account. So I started working as soon as I got in school and I kept working throughout my two years of being there. I was prep cook. I worked a little bit on the line, on the Garde Manger station, and I saw what it takes to run a restaurant and what it takes to be a cook in a New York City restaurant. Any restaurant is hard, but you know New York City restaurants, the speed at which the tickets come. And I quickly realized that I would not be able to survive on a cook salary. And that's a really sad reality. That's so sad and you know, true. Yeah, we need to talk about more. Yeah. <laughs> and after graduation, I decided that because I had some experience with front of house, because I knew I would be making a little bit more money, I would have a little bit more flexibility with what I wanted to do with my schedule. And I started working at this restaurant in Soho, first as a hostess, then as a barista, then, you know, I worked the shitty brunch shifts for a year. You had the whole hustle. (laughs) I didn't. When people ask me, when did you socialize? You know, I have to stop and think because I was like, I don't think I socialized. My socializing was like at work. Right. Co-workers. (laughs) Co-workers. And, you know, the restaurant closed 
I think a year and a half, two years into working there. And that's when, again, I was like, I need to kind of reevaluate where I am and where I want this food journey to go. Because I realized that I didn't have enough capital to start a restaurant in New York City. I didn't know enough people. I didn't have the connections. Mm-hmm. And are you cooking at all during this time? Like, are you cooking at all even for yourself? No. Lots did, of ramen. <laughs> did you miss it? I missed it so much. Yeah. You know, the only real food I ate was family meal at the restaurant. And after parties, if there was food left over, we would eat that. So I wasn't really cooking that much for myself, which is ironic. Yeah, the restaurant <laughs> world. <laughs> so, you know, yet again, here I am making a list in my tiny Chinatown apartment about what is it that I can do with my life moving forward from this. And that's when I was like, oh my God, food media. You still get to cook. You get to write about food. You get to express yourself. So I was just going through any free courses that I could related to social media or food photography on I was learning as I went. Like, With all this know. free time you had after working your two jobs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lots of, you know, nights where I was up till 4 a.m. And then, you know, I was waking up early to catch the morning light to practice photography. It just is amazing how you just sort of circled and circled and got sort of closer and closer to what you wanted. Did you know that what you wanted was a job in a test kitchen? If I'm being honest, this seemed like such a far-fetched dream that I thought I would never be able to achieve, you know? I was just like, are you insane? (laughs) And I kind of made a plan as I went, Amanda. I'm not going to say I had it all figured out because I didn't. But one thing that I kept telling myself was, what is going to separate you from the crowd? And I thought, trying to learn as many skills as I could and always giving more than I'm asked for. Yeah, there's just so much wrapped up in that. I feel like we could do a whole episode on just how much of this sort of perseverance you think is necessary versus like all of the barriers that women and people of color face in the industry. And I think that there's so much in your story that, you know, I hope and I think our listeners can resonate with. I mean, just hearing about it gives me chills. So since you've been at Bon Appetit, what have you cooked that you've been really excited about? So I'm very excited about my grilled chicken breast with tarkaish sauce and crunchy bit of greens in a buttermilk dressing. Wow. Particularly because I know people in India will be able to make this recipe. And which is very important to me. You know. And why do you say that? Because even though... You know, India has progressed. There's so much import-export going on. There's still some ingredients that people can't find there. It's, It's a way of being connected to my culture as well, right? So with every recipe, I don't want it to be like, oh, we can't make that because we we don't get that here. Right. I try to sprinkle in recipes that uh, people be like, yes, of course I have cumin in my masala tub. Of course I have nigella seeds, you know? So just a fun way to use the things that they already have. So... As we wrap up, hearing your story, it seems to me like realizing you're a food person was really the beginning of such a long and winding and ultimately 
really rewarding journey. But if you look back on it, what do you think defines you as a food person? So I am the kind of person who will be talking about my next meal as I haven't even finished this current meal. That's how obsessed and intrinsic and I feel like food is a part of my life. And I realized that the more of a food person I became, the closer I got to my identity and my culture. And I want to keep going. And like that's what wants to keep me going, you know, on this journey. Yeah. So good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on this episode of Food People. I am so excited for all our listeners to hear it and to get to know you better through your time at BA. And so happy to have you as a colleague, too. And I'm very happy to be here. Can't wait to meet yeah. you, Amanda, in person. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. <laughs> When we come back, we're going to get into another food person's story. He's a talented chef, a fashion inspiration, and a frequent contributor on BA's YouTube channel. Stick around to hear my conversation with Devon Francis after a short break. Our listeners may already know of Devon as the man in the Bon Appetit videos who is always cooking with the absolute best outfits. And I have to say, Devon, it's sometimes hard to pay attention to what you're making because I'm like really worried you're going to spill jerk chicken marinade through the holes of your mesh top. Devon is a pro, though. He has cooked in restaurants and pop-ups across New York. He's developed recipes for BA. And in 2017, he launched Yardi, his events company that celebrates cultural identity and conversation through food. Welcome to Food People, Devon. I'm super excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I, I saved my appropriate shirts for the podcast. It's a more comfortable, cozy vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't see him right now, but he does look quite comfortable. Black t-shirt, very classy. <laughs> so let's just jump right into it. I have to ask you first, would you even identify as a food person? You know, I've had to grow into the term food person. I, d I didn't think I was a food person at first. I feel like my parents are very much so my inspiration for being a food person and, and learning how to celebrate not only being a food person in general, but the actual very specific ways in which my culture and my identity play into how I identify as a food person. Um, my dad, after retiring from the Navy, he started a restaurant with zero cooking experience. He wasn't a chef, but he really loved music actually. And so he wanted to create a place and environment where people could come and really get to understand his sensibilities and his his ideas of taste and art and connect with them through music and dialogue and and also food that's such a big part of how he grew up you know being from Jamaica he started the restaurant and I was right there next to him. I would go after school. I'd be there on weekends. It was very much so a family-run business. My other brothers and sister were there as well. And that was one of the first times I started to really understand what food meant to me and what it meant to my family. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense from your dad's side. What was your mom's connection to food like? 
My mom is a really incredible cook. And it was cool because my mom was cooking not only for me, but she was also cooking for her friends. Like she was really big on entertaining. I remember she was a, a very big catalog shopper in our household. And she would order these very specific crystal dinnerware sets. Uh-huh. And we'd always have like what we would consider the eating table and what was like the special table where it was only for holidays, but it was always, it was always ready for a dinner party, even though no one was sitting there. And on weekends, you know, after she called all of her brothers, sisters and cousins and aunties and calling her relatives back in Jamaica and speaking in Patois, and then we would go downstairs and make a traditional Jamaican breakfast. So those are some of the few moments I remember, which was very much so about, you know, intimacy and bonding and just spending time with food there right beside us as kind of like another personality in the room, honestly. Yeah. And what kind of food did she cook mostly? And where did you grow up? Yeah. So I'm from Virginia by way of my parents who are from Jamaica and immigrated to New York in the, I think it was the early seventies actually. But it was funny to have sort of that blend of Southern cooking and food and cuisine and our Jamaican heritage too. So as much as I was eating like ackee and saltfish and stew beef and curry goat and fried fish, there was also cornbread and yam and and all these like sort of just like very Southern fixings at the table too, which is interesting to kind of grow up in, in between worlds. And I think that as a first generation Jamaican American, you often do that, right? Your parents come to a place and they are exploring something that feels new and unfamiliar, but also bringing that comfort with them too. I want to go back to what you were saying about that kind of blend of cuisines, because that is such a common story. And also you as the child, I want to know how you were involved in that. Were you bringing food ideas or inspiration or cravings back to your parents from the world that you were experiencing out in Virginia and in school and with your friends? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, as the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. And I was very blessed to have what I would say is like a ton of surrogate mothers. So there were like a ton of just like really incredible, big personality, just joyous (laughs) black women who basically like all took me in as their child and would take turns watching me and shuttling me here and there when my mom was busy. You know, now they watch me on Bon Appetit and they're just so ecstatic to see me there. And they're always just like, when are you going to come home and cook for me? I miss you. (laughs) They're like, we cooked for you. We cooked for you when you were a kid. Now it's your (laughs) turn. (laughs) Exactly. And it, you know, it's very amazing because I feel like it's always been an exchange in that way where people come into your life and the, the ways in which food helps you to kind of reverse the roles of caretaking is interesting, right? Because I feel like, yeah, when you're younger, you're learning, you're adopting all these kind of things from your parents. But as folks get older, there's so much that you can give back to them too. Yeah, that makes so much sense, sort of knowing how community oriented you are as a chef. So you have your father running the restaurant and you have your mother cooking and you have all of your Southern aunties and fast forwarding to you finding your own footing as a chef. How much are you drawing inspiration from sort of those parts of your upbringing? It's interesting because I feel like for a long time, I was trying to be a different type of chef or a different type of food person, I guess you can say. And what type was that? Someone who, you know, had lots of arm tattoos and ran a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, no. (laughs) Not that type. (laughs) And is that because that's what you were seeing in New York and the kinds of people you were working with? Interestingly enough, it is New York, but you know what else it is? Being on the Bon Appetit platform, it kind of has opened my eyes up to the real intentions of maybe what, what I feel like my purpose is. You know, when I was younger, me and my mom would sit in bed and watch... Ina and Martha and Bobby Flay and Guy Fieri, you know, in in these very specific ways, which, you know, and no shade to any of them, like go off. Iconic. Iconic. They did the thing. But you know, what was missing is that, you know, I, I wanted to see someone who shared my own experience and kind of, you know, shared in my own feelings about the world, someone who looked like me, and I just didn't see enough of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm Jamaican, but I'm also a queer first generation Jamaican American person who has a very specific life experience. And I don't want to compromise on that because there's just so much at stake with carrying those feelings and that identity. Right. It seems like for you, that moment of actually accepting yourself as a food person, well, it wasn't a moment. It's just been this trajectory of actually carving out your own version of what that means and really doing it. Do you get messages or notes ever from people who see you on Bon Appetit video or who see you as sort of their role model the way that you look to the Food Network stars or whomever and didn't see your yourself looking back at you? Oh my God, yes. It actually happened two days ago, which was so cute. <laughs> and the cool thing it was in person. I went to um I went to the spa actually. Ooh, good Self, for you. Self-care, yes, exactly. I went to the spa and I ran into this queer couple, this queer black couple. One was Jamaican. I saw her across the way and she like kind of motioned for me to come towards her. And I was like, oh my God, who me? Whatever could Were you, you like totally naked? Like, oh my God, this is awkward. <laughs> no, I was in a robe. I was in a robe. Um, but it's also fun. I have no shame about that. I'd be naked and say hi to. Yeah. But yeah, she, she was just like, I've been watching the work that you do. And I just want to tell you how inspired I am to see someone else who is queer in Jamaican doing this work. Yeah. It was really, really nice to to be like, oh my God, it's working. Like you don't really realize until you take a step back of what's actually happening outside of yourself. And moments like that are so humbling because it's like, that's what motivates me to get out of bed. Like, I want to make 500 more videos just so I can reach 500 more queer Jamaican people if possible. And that's what makes me feel really good about the work that I'm doing. Yeah, that's so amazing. And I totally hear you. Like, sometimes it's like you're just playing with widgets and you forget that the work that you put out has this whole life that it lives after it's out of your hands, that all these people are consuming it and it's affecting them. And I'm just so impressed and so glad that you're part of the Bon Appetit family now and so happy to have talked to you today. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. I hope we've made the case today for why the show has its name. Being a food person is about singular moments, like that bite of popcorn and Velveeta cheese, but also long winding paths that a lot of us are still on. It's who we are, and it's who this show is for. And if any of that resonates, you're in the right place. Welcome to Food People. Thank you to our guests, Devon Francis, Rachel Gurjar, and the rest of the BA staff for sharing their stories. You can follow Devon on Instagram with maybe the best username ever, that's tuna underscore turner, and watch all his videos on BA's YouTube channel. 
And you can follow Rachel on Instagram as well at Rachel Gurjar and get all of Rachel's delicious recipes, including a peach Aperol spritz I've been making on repeat on bonappetit.com. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep food people employed. And you can follow Bon Appetit on Instagram at Bon Appetit Mag and on Twitter at Bon Appetit. Food People is produced by Bon Appetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Madison Lusby is our production manager. And Morgan Foose and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty and the music is by DJ Newmark. June Kim and I provide editorial direction for the series. Special thanks to Matt Sav, Nico Steele, and Julie Shen. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro. I'll see you next week. 